Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Today, I am going to... Um, I'm going to do another episode where I answer your questions. Because the last time I did it, we got wonderful feedback. A bunch of good conversations started out of it. I got more emails than um, I usually do after an episode from people telling me that they appreciated um, sort of longer answers to things that come up uh, often on the show. The only thing I didn't like about it completely was that I ended up um, like asking myself questions and then answering them. So I've, I've uh, asked my son, Sam Cobbleman. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Uh, it's going well to um, come and help me out. So he may ask some of the questions or we may just talk some of it through. But also, I just like having him here um, to help me. So, uh, you know, I'm going to start with something that uh, I got a bunch of different questions about, Sam, and you've heard me talk about a lot. But, but it's something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by saying it's something I don't really have the answer to. A bunch of people have written me asking what I understand is a really crucial question, and that's about breaking in. And the truth of it is, it's really hard to give... An, if you're if we are being honest how to break in how to get somebody to read your uh, your script or your article or or your idea it seems insurmountable at the beginning and so people always want it's not that they want a shortcut and that a shortcut is like a bad thing but they want a definitive answer and what you're really asking i think when you ask the question how do i break in or how do I um, get somebody to be my agent? Is how do I get permission to be a professional? It's something that Seth talks about a lot, Seth Godin. And, and the truth is that if you're entering the arts, you're entering uncertainty. And that there's really no getting around this uncertainty. And that uncertainty is, it's possible no one will ever officially give you permission. So the only thing you can do is give yourself permission to do the work. From a very practical standpoint, you just should keep completing pieces of work. That's really the only thing you can do to feel a sense of progress and a sense of moving forward. You know, if I think about my own life, once I started writing, we did quickly get representation. But in that little window, we had a, a ton of rejection. And so I know what it feels like to hear the answer no. I know what it feels like when you look out there and you don't see anyone reaching out to lend a hand. And it's a lonely and scary feeling. And so yes, networking is important. And yeah, using social media and using your contact base and sending your stuff out and writing query letters and maybe um, submitting to the blacklist, those things are really, they are tangible steps you can take and, but each of them will only make you feel a little bit better. The only thing that will make you feel a lot better is to do the next piece of work. Because I do have this belief that if you write something or create something undeniable, that you will flip the paradigm. You won't be asking them to represent you. They will be asking you for the privilege of representing you. And I know that sounds idealistic. And I also know, uh, I said this recently on someone else's podcast, and, and this is also why I'm uh, loath to really answer this question very often, that I'm speaking from a place of both privilege and distance. 
privilege because as a, a white male growing up when I did, um, the barriers to entry for me were much smaller than they are for other people. So I accept that an undeniable script written by Dave and me, which rounders, um, doesn't necessarily mean that if somebody uh, who was built differently wrote that, it would have been as easy. Because when people read our script and then we went to meet with them, there were all sorts of biases that were in our favor. That said, I don't have a cure for that problem. So the only thing that I understand how to cure is the feeling of uncertainty, the feeling of desperation. And the only way I know to cure it is by doing the work. So that's why I'm up every morning still doing morning pages and meditating and um, trying to create new work. It's why David and I wrote Billions on spec instead of pitching it because we felt like um, to go out and pitch would be to relinquish power to other people, but to write would be to generate our own power uh, in some way. And so that's all that I can say, and I, I, in a way I know that it sounds simplistic, but I promise that if you spend a little time every day creating, you will then feel a sense of control, you will then feel a sense of power, and you will lessen the feeling of need and desperation. Did that, you think I gave a, is that a completish answer? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm ready to write. You are? I fired yeah, yeah. you up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, that's great. That, that My was the first time hearing any of that, so super exciting. So, okay, so that shows you that even if you're an involved, committed, connected parent, the sarcasm will still hit you in the face from time to time. Yeah, no, you just got to keep writing. Uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's reassuring to know that even as Vine died and, and many of sort of the foundational pieces of advice um, have withered away um, and, and, and disappeared on the internet, um, the sage wisdom of making sure to wake up and write every day. So yeah, when your kid says that you have sage wisdom, I think you know that what your kid's telling you is to move on to the next question. And so we will. All right, question number two, Sammy. Uh, Your old Twitter friend Nick Abisi writes, why Johnny Chan over other great Holden players? Okay, good. This seems like a really specific question tied to rounders, but it's not because it's a great window into collaborating with a director. And if you're endeavoring to be in, in the movie business or in the TV business, or almost these days, any creative endeavor, I, I think maybe except maybe novel writing, you don't have to, but even in novel writing, then there are going to be editors involved. So this is uh, a great thing that happened and a, a little told story. So it'll sound poker rounders nerdy at first, but then I promise it will um, mushroom out into something more general and I think um, usable. So the short answer is the reason we use Johnny Chan in the movie is there's a scene when the main character, the protagonist, Mike McDermott, played by Matt Damon, is watching an old World Series of Poker. And he's watching a hand where Johnny Chan defeats Eric Seidel by um, looking weak, by checking. And he forces Seidel to uh, commit all his chips and then calls him, revealing that he'd flopped the nut straight. And here's a spoiler for Rounders, which is a 20-year-old movie, so I don't feel bad about it. At the end of the movie, Mike McDermott traps Teddy KGB when he flops the nut straight and checks to the end, and then the Counting Crows sing a song all about checking it up. So 
um, we knew we wanted to end the movie that way and we wanted the parallel structure. But the the thing that in the script originally, Johnny Chan was in the scene, and I don't know if even you know this, son, but the scene at the end, when toward the end, when Matt's character goes to Atlantic City and we reveal that he had played a hand of poker with Johnny Chan, that was originally Phil Hellmuth in the script. Hmm. Did you know that? Did not know that. And then John Dahl, upon reading the script, said, hey guys, I'll, I'll do whatever you want. Um, this is the thing directors will say. If you're lucky enough to get in a situation where, where a director might shoot your movie, um, they will at some point say to you, hey, I'd shoot it as is. That's never true. They will want to make changes. But that's a great, if they, if they start there, at least yeah, you have a shot. So when John started explaining this to us, we were pretty attached at first to the idea of having it be Phil Hellmuth because that had really happened to me. I went down to Atlantic City. Uh, I didn't defeat him. I went down. I didn't have enough money, but I sat at the table with Phil Hellmuth, who was the most famous poker player in the world at the time. I sat to his left. He raised a few pots. I didn't lose. They were playing 300, 600. The game, as described, is the game that they were playing. I was way under, um, way undermatched. I was overmatched, and I was undercapitalized playing the game. But I, I played in it, and I watched it. And so when Dave and I sat down to write the script, we made it Phil Helmuth. And I have to say, I was really attached to that idea, right? So people always want to know when and how to compromise um, when collaborating. And so when John Dahl first said, the director of the movie, first said to, to us, hey, I think it's stronger if he's watching Johnny Chan on television. Then he's playing with Johnny Chan in Atlantic City, and then he uses the tactics from watching Johnny Chan to defeat Teddy at the end. He's like, if all three things are the same, I think it'll have a stronger effect. The emotion and the story will accrete. And at first, I wanted to say no, and I think I probably did, didn't say yes right away. And then David and I went away and tried it, which I, I, I always think is worth doing. As writers, as creative people, and really, by the way, this goes across, I think, every industry. You know, you work on a project, you present it to the people who are your superiors. As soon as they start to punch holes in it, your immediate response emotionally is defensiveness. And because you've thought this stuff out, you've, you've considered these other options and you've put your heart and soul into the project. And then suddenly someone's like, hey, but I don't think that that's the right, um, that tagline doesn't work or that sales strategy. What if we tried this sales strategy instead? And you're, um, because we have an ego, our, our ego is inextricably invested in our work. Often our initial response is anger, frustration, and it clouds our thinking. And so if you can train yourself to take the thoughts in, the kind of constructive criticism in, and then go away and wait till you're calm, and then dispassionately look at it, you will be able to make a better quality decision. And so when David and I did go away from that combo with John, um, we tried it. We were like, well, let's just put it up and see what the scene looks like if it's Chan, and let's read the script. And John was an incredible um, senior officer because as the director of the film, he could have insisted upon it. He did the opposite. He was like, why don't you guys try it? Why don't you guys see what you think? And we went back and we did it. Um, it was immediately clear to us that it was the right choice. 
And then we went out and got Johnny Chan. And then Johnny Chan was incredible. Um, years later, I told Helmuth and I showed him the original script. And uh, we finally gave Phil the makeup call in last, seasons of Billi- last season of Billions. Um, and hey, wait, was he on Tilt too, Sam? Do you remember? I don't remember. I know Dan Negrano was on Tilt, but I don't... Oh, no, he was. I'm almost... I'm, I think he was, but he was definitely on Billions. Definitely on Billions last season. So 20 years later, uh, we gave him the makeup call. Uh, but he was uh, annoyed that we took him out of the script and um, and made it Johnny Chan. But look, the 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 broader lesson that I learned, and and it's hard. And I will say that when people give me notes, not on not on billions, because the people we work with give really smart notes, and they understand, like John Dahl did, how to present them. But over the course of our career, there's no doubt I've overreacted and I've acted. I've given into the impulse. Um, I was having I was having breakfast with a screenwriter recently who told me. That sometimes on notes calls, he's really polite, but he lets the people on the other end of the phone know that he thinks he's smarter than them. And when he said it, I started, I didn't blush exactly, but I started, I recognized it as a tendency that I also have had in my career. And that only comes out of a kind of an irrational fear of that you're going to lose control of the project. The truth though is the quickest way to lose control of it is by telling the people who hired you and are going to pay you that they're idiots or letting them think that. Instead, take a deep breath, absorb the notes or the comments, dispassionately evaluate them, do the ones that make sense, find a way to answer the questions on the ones that don't make sense and move on. All right, question three coming up. Jim Samuel at JW Samuel writes, do you ever look back at things you've written and think of how you could have done them better? Or do you put them away for good and not think about them again until after the final product is complete? Oh, man, Jim. Jim, I can tell you're my kind of person because, well, one, I recognize you from Twitter and we've gone back and forth a bunch. But also, I mean, yeah, we're all haunted by um, the things we could have changed or the things we could have done better. It's most frustrating when you find the answer to a movie like Knockaround Guys, which came out in 2002, maybe, I think, or 2001. I remember one day I was walking with Levine, like two years later, and I, and I turned to him and I went, I've got it. And, and he said, what, man? Great. Something. And I go, I know how we should start Knockaround Guys. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? You know how we should start it. And I was like, it suddenly came to me and I broke down this whole structure of the movie and, and he's such a good partner. He, he listened patiently and he was like, dude, what are you doing? But the truth is sometimes, yeah, but, but there is no point in it. I mean, I, I think I was probably worse before I was committed to journaling all the days and the meditation. Like um, living in a place of regret isn't great, isn't that productive. So uh, I don't do it that that often i i can watch most of the things the things that i liked when we made them i can pretty much watch sometimes i'll wish we staged something slightly differently or i'll wish we solved a problem but i don't really beat myself up the truth is i think i probably beat myself up most about times that maybe i wasn't as kind as i could have been you know when i was 15 like that's really the stuff that where where there was some kind of human cost but and not big human cost, literally like, I wish I wasn't, you know, you know, didn't say that dickish thing to somebody in uh, ninth grade, much more than I look at the work and which wish we could have 
uh, changed it. Thanks for the question. I understand where it comes from. Hey, this week, the moment is brought to you by Billions. If you're not watching the show, I'd really appreciate you give it a shot. Um, as you know, if you listen to this, uh, I put everything that I have into making the show. And, but that's not the only reason to watch it. The, the truth is that I, I believe we have the finest cast of actors on television today. These are people working at the very top of their game. Emmy Award winners, Paul Giamatti, Damian Lewis, along with Malin Ackerman, Maggie Siff, David Costable, Toby Leonard Moore, Condola Rashad, Jeffrey DeMunn, Asia Kate Dillon. And um, look, the show is really intense this season. It's also funny. I can't, like another podcaster could use all these adjectives to describe it, but I can't do that because I'm selling my own thing. But what I can say is that people who watch and give it an episode or two end up binging the whole damn thing and then tweeting at me to ask us to get the show ready faster. So check it out. Don't miss the new season of Billions. New episodes every Sunday at 10, 9 central only on Showtime. My listeners can get an extended 30-day free trial of Showtime to catch up on the first two seasons of Billions by answering moments at getshowtime.com. The offer expires April 15th, so download the app today. So we'll get to the next question. I want to say, um, anytime you want to ask me a question, because I think I'll do these like once a month or once every six weeks or so. So use the hashtag askmomentbk on Twitter or write to me at themomentbk at gmail.com. And then we can like kind of collect these questions and maybe I'll find a way to upvote, upvote, downvote questions the way Tim Ferriss does um, so that I know I'm answering the ones that people care the most about. But here, Sammy, you, you have another one. This is from uh, Max Harris. Between social media, your podcast, and billions, you appear to have a strong relationship and interest regarding chefs and restaurateurs. What is it about food and the restaurant business that you were so drawn to? Thanks for all that you do. I mean, I think we have to shout out Brian Garner right now, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. For, for a long, long time, um, even someone as knowledgeable and passionate about food as, as the two of us, we, uh, we said restaurateurs. We did. Um, but the, the, the linguist legal expert lexicographer lexicographer as it were uh brian garner um one of my favorite podcast episodes um is the brian garner episode he's a word geek but he's uh, also just a brilliant person david foster wallace wrote a great essay about him and his book um garner's uh modern american usage and worth listening to i really for my whole life thought it was restaurateur it's not it's as my son pronounced it restaurateur who gets to go to what restaurant when is a huge signifier, I think, in a story. So I, I can answer this a couple different ways. My, my personal fascination with chefs and restaurants comes from loving food, but also just a total admiration for the impossible thing that they do each day and the fact that they're engaged in an art that is essentially ineffable. It disappears. I mean, it's highly tangible at first, but it's... Uh, it then it disappears. Ephemeral. It's ephemeral. What did I say? You, you said ineffable. Well, there's an ineffable quality to what makes a great chef. But you're right. I meant ephemeral. This is why it's useful to have my son around. I wasn't going to say anything. You gave me a total look. You gave me a look that said, Dad, you just... <laughs> At least we nailed the uh, restaurateurs thing, though. We got that right. Yeah, yeah, and then sure. we stumbled upon uh, ineffable and ephemeral. 
So yeah, but they're engaged in this ephemeral thing. They cook something tangible and then they they put everything into it and then it's gone. So on the one hand, that aspect of it is very beautiful to me and moving because they're also in service of making you have this incredible experience. And yeah, they get paid for it. They put in a tremendous, uh, you know, we know the celebrity chefs, but most chefs are just incredibly hardworking people, really creative. They give everything they have. Their reward is seeing you happy. Um, and there's nothing really left of what they've done except the story you tell afterwards. So I, I love the um, romance of that and the poetry of it, and I always have. And then as a storyteller, what I love is that, especially in a city like New York, Restaurants are huge signifiers of power, influence, status. And um, you can tell a lot about somebody by the way they act in a restaurant. So um, it's a great place to play out a kind of social drama. We always think about scene settings when we make our show or anyone makes any show, they're thinking about where to set the scenes. And a restaurant, because there are service people, there are other customers, there are all sorts of pockets of potential conflict. There are all sorts of pockets of potential humiliation, like when you confuse the word uh, ineffable for ephemeral and your son calls you out on national podcast. But um, I know there's no such thing as national podcast. That's the other thing you were you looked up. I basically said that for you. But... Um, <laughs> The uh, but no the, the 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 truth is that there are opportunities for both um, uh, embarrassment and for a kind of uh, showing off and so you know you have somebody of status and is their status going to be lowered or raised by their interactions along the way in a restaurant if they know the chef and that means they can get a good table or they can get to eat in the restaurant when other people can't that means something if they then give that table to somebody else. That might be a gallant gesture. If they yell at a waiter, you're if you will yell at a waiter in a movie, you're immediately a villain, um, unless the waiters put something in in your soup. So I I think that the restaurants are a great setting and stage on which a lot of drama can play out. And so that's those are a few of the reasons why I find that pretty fascinating. All right, next question, son. Jeremy Jones asks on your creative process. Do you first have an idea for great characters and then build a story around them? Or do you first have an idea for a story, then build characters into it? I love thinking about this. I, um, almost always it's a world first. Uh, something about a world and the people in that world are become super compelling to David and me. One of us will stumble into something, report back to the other one and be like, you know, there's this group of people who are into X or, or Y or Z. And so rounders, it was um, underground poker players, knock around guys. We'd heard about these sons of wise guys and who were um, acting out in certain ways. On Billions, it would be these two groups of people, these federal lawyers and these hedge fund managers and the people who worked at hedge funds. And then from that, when we start trying to learn a lot about that world, so we researched the world for rounders. It meant we played poker for two years. I mean, in truth, I was playing poker first. And it was through playing poker that, that um, I first had the idea and told Dave about the world. Um, and then 
once on Solitary Man, it was because I'd heard about a character. I'd met a person. And that person, I saw him do something to somebody and say something to them. And from that, I invented a fictional character. So the real person wasn't a car dealer. He was something else. But then I thought about five or six other people. And so I ended up making the character a composite. And then I became really interested in the world of uh, car salesmen and began writing about them and building the thing out from there. But almost always it starts with the fascination of a world because I've always loved insular groups of people with their own languages, signals, semiotics, way of communicating and being. And so I find if I start there and then Dave and I start talking and then we start thinking about the characters. Sometimes we may have a character we've carried around for years but not had a world to plug him or her into. And so... Um, we will then be able to put that character in the the character of Worm um, was somebody I, I went to college with. And we had tried to use Worm, and he was actually at college. That was his nickname. I won't say his real name, but anyone who went to college with me knows. And he was a bookmaker on campus, a gambler on campus, and a really smart, fast-talking guy who... Dave and I were like just totally always fascinated with like, how's Worm pull all this off? How does Worm, everyone still loves Worm despite the fact that he does all these things. And of course, by the way, he's a successful lawyer now in life. But so we knew that we wanted to write something that would have Worm fill sort of like the Eric Roberts role in Pope of Greenwich Village. But when I stumbled into the poker club, it gave it um, a form. It was like a, a world for it to exist in. Oh, I love this question. I could talk about it for a long time, but that's how we approach it. There isn't a right or wrong way to approach that. I mean, you could totally start with a character and build a world around that character. That's completely legit. This next question is from Mike Crow. What impact has being Jewish had on your life, career, and mental health? For instance, do you think there's any correlation with you being Jewish and you feeling a sense of aloneness in the world? I wanted to answer this one because um, I rarely define myself that way. It's true that I was raised in a Jewish household. It's true that I uh, was, as they say, called to the bar mitzvah. But uh, but in the world right now, so for a long time, I, look, I'm an atheist. I don't really practice Judaism in any way. But um, but I will say that anytime somebody takes Jewish out of my Wikipedia somebody puts it right back in. And the world being what it is, the truth is it doesn't matter whether I identify as Jewish. The people who hate Jews identify me that way. And so, yes, there's no doubt that being Jewish has affected my view of the world. Because when you're, Jew when you're born Jewish, you have to... You're, it, you immediately grapple with the legacy of what that means. You immediately grapple. And, you know, so some then decide it's only about protecting that Jewish identity. But I think part of the way, and Sam, I'm bringing into this, that you and I talked about this since you were young, and you really started talking about it this way, was the obligation you have, actually, if you go one notch deeper, to look for anybody being treated the way that Jews were treated. So that... Um, it definitely makes you look out for the underdog, right? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a it's a responsibility that I think you feel that you got to look out for 
different oppressed groups at different periods of time. It's also interesting, you know, it's easy to pass as Jewish or to ignore it. Um, and it's been that way for the entirety of, you know, both of our lives, basically. But when, you know, you see the march in Charlottesville and you hear people screaming, Jews will not replace us, uh, you know, they're not making an exception for agnostic New Yorkers, atheist New Yorkers like us. Um, they don't care if you're, you know, practicing Jew or if you just like challah, like they don't want you to replace them. So, oh, yeah, we like ha- we like challah bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no doubt about it. No, big supporter. Um, but, but, but I would say this also. Like, what you said about being Jewish enables you to pass is totally true. And so one thing that I think you have to be aware of, if you're a member of a, a group that has been oppressed, but that doesn't face much oppression now, you have a couple of different choices. And so one choice is to just pass. There's this great movie called Sunshine, not the Danny Boyle one, the other one, about uh, that Ray Fine stars in about generations um, who are able to assimilate, but then eventually get kind of called out and and pay dear consequences. But the thing of it is that most of the other oppressed groups can't pass. And so what it has done, the way in which it's affected me, I don't think it's affected me as an artist really, but as a human, other than the ways in which you are as a human affect the way you are as an artist. But what it does do is make you aware of the people who can't hide, right? I mean, um, a sick parlor game growing up in our in my house as a kid and in ours is the who would hide you game. I don't think God. I don't think most families play that game, Sam. You know, it explains a lot for sure about your family. anxiety, neuroses. Yeah, I mean, if you grow up playing the who's going to hide you game, it's very hard to meet someone and have sort of a neutral first impression. It's like basically <laughs> what I ask. It's like, can this person make me laugh, and would they hide me? But you know what? And if one of those answers is yes, then it's fine. Then you'll hang you with You need them. at least one. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's great. Yeah. And if you find someone who will do both. That's can a make, keeper. Can make you laugh and would hide you. Uh, yeah, they're a keeper. So, um, in fact, it's not a bad Twitter bio. Make me, you know. But um, so the answer to the question really is, yes, it's affected me in all sorts of ways. What I hope it's done is make me a bit more human uh, and a bit more aware of the less fortunate and those who can't defend themselves at times. And interestingly, for that second half of the question, does it make you feel um, more alone in the world? Um, it seems that like the response for you has been the opposite, that it's made you feel connected to a bunch of other groups, a bunch of other people who have gone through a similar struggle that Jewish people have gone through in the past and has led you to sort of reach out and, and be more active in combating other forms of injustice. That's completely true. Uh, I think about my friend John Acuff a lot, who's an evangelical Christian, and um, we come from such different backgrounds, but both of us reach out, have always reached out to the other to try to gain understanding and perspective. And I think part of that for me, as opposed to if I were a different kind of atheist, but being a culturally Jewish atheist, I am always trying to connect and understand and not judge, because I know what the power of judgment against those um, born into my religion uh, has done and can do. So I I like this question, and I know it's not what I usually talk about on the show, but I think think it's worth talking about. All right, I have one question for all of the I'm going to listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people. Are you struggling to get some shut-eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck. 
because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed, from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I have limited time. I'm a writer, primarily, a uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. Hey, let's talk about ZipRecruiter. So, you know, one of the hardest things for me to do in my particular job, helping to run a television show, is hiring. I'm trying to hire writers all the time. I'm hiring different people. And so I understand how hard it is in the corporate world or in any world to find great talent and how inefficient the process has always been. And uh, ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. They find the people. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, check this stat out. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Quality candidate, by their own definition. Uh, they agree that the person's qualified. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. You're not going to overlook it, the perfect person because they're going to flag the perfect person for you or the perfect type of person. If the right candidates are out there, ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, on to the next question. All right, so switching gears to a more technical question um, from Chris Rowe on Twitter. How do you get inside of the heads of the characters you write? All feel real, act, and make decisions authentically. Do you and David split characters and live with them until you're sure how they would act? Or is it logical in that you exhaust all options before settling? So yeah, it's not logical in that way, meaning we don't, we don't engage in an exercise of logic in the traditional mathematic sense of logic. Someone else asked about research, uh, how much research we do. Those things are tied. When I'm actually writing scenes, I am not really thinking in, in any way analytically. I will, after I finish a draft of a scene, I'll look at it for all sorts of technical, you know, to tighten it, to make sure the conflict exists, to make sure that each line really sings. Like, I'll do that when we're revising. But in terms of making the characters feel real, we do a lot of work in advance. So we research and we talk about the characters. We talk about what, what they care about. We talk about 
where they came from. We talk about what they want, what their why is. And then when we know that stuff, when we write, we are just, um, we're just doing it as, um, as unselfconsciously as possible and with as active a subconscious as possible. And this ties into the practice I have of doing morning pages. The morning pages, which are three pages that, that just flow, longhand pages that flow each morning, begin the process of allowing my subconscious to spill out onto the page. And so it, it makes me get out of my head. And when I write, I don't want to be in my head. I want to, um, it's not that I've read when people say, oh, the characters just take over. And it's not that the characters take over. But what it is, is that I'm not trying to force something. Each of the characters have enough of, if it's Dave writing Dave and a me, me writing of us, that we can just write them. They're fully, um, they're fully alive to us when we write them. They're, they're fully um, real to us. And so that writing them is just as natural as talking is right now. I could, I could answer all these questions as Bobby Axelrod, or I could answer all these questions as Chuck Rhodes. Um, I could probably still answer them as Worm and Mike McDermott too, because they're all a part of me. And when I say I, I mean Dave and me, because we'll each write scenes, then we'll pass the scenes back and forth. And the truth is that when we when we do it, our first draft is um, I write half the scenes, Dave writes half the scenes, we then put them together. If you read that document, it wouldn't feel like a fully uh, finished billion script, though it would feel close, but you would never be able to tell that one person wrote one scene and then another the next because we've already made the characters um, fully both of ours before we start writing. Did I answer that? Okay, good. Next question. Just do a couple more. Oh, hey, here's an addendum. Um, someone just asked online, ha Hamid Fashandi just asked me to settle a bet about the last hand of rounders. What did KGB have? Um, that's the one question, Dave, and I'll never answer. But this goes further than that John Dahl thing, and it, it's a really great, another great director story. Originally, Dave and I didn't want to show either of the whole cards. We didn't want to show what Mike had or what Teddy had until the hands were shown down. And then we always knew we wouldn't show Teddy's, but we would show Mike's. And John said, because we wanted a surprise, we wanted that the end, Mike would flip over his cards and you would see, wow, he had a straight the whole time. And this is before the whole card cam was on World Poker Tour. And so that's the way poker was generally presented. You didn't see the whole cards. And John said to us, hey guys, I think people will follow along and root harder if they know. He was like, they'll have suspense of whether Mike will be able to induce Teddy to bet versus the feeling of surprise and it'll be stronger and and we argued with him and we were we we said no we really feel strongly and and this was amazing um we were not we were the least powerful people on the set but john had so much respect for the fact that we'd written the script that it was a spec script that we really knew this world that he was he said how's this let's put both versions up in front of an audience We'll play one at six o'clock and one at eight o'clock or 8.30 because the movie ran two hours and five minutes. And we'll see how the audiences react. We'll see if they score differently the movie. And then we'll make the decision together. And we did it. And during the watching of the movie, it was so clear that showing Mike's whole cards was better that even though the scores were identical, we agreed with John and we were like, let's show Mike's hand. And as far as what Teddy had, I will never tell. Okay, next question.
So uh, David Nikoloff emails, Last week began what I hope is a consistent routine of morning pages. Curious, where do you squeeze meditation into your day? Is it before or after your three pages? People ask this all the time, so it's a good question. The normal routine is wake up, put the coffee on, meditate. Sometimes I'll drink the coffee first, half the cup or a little of it. Meditate, then morning pages. If I am feeling the least bit blocked though, or if I'm feeling like there's just a lot of swirl related to the actual thing I'm writing, I'll switch it up and I'll do the morning pages first um, and then meditate. I, I think it's one of those things where you don't have to be perfect. Like um, all this stuff, like I meditate 20 minutes twice a day, but if I can only get in 14 or 15 minutes the second time I meditate, I don't want to beat myself up about it. So if one day you don't meditate first thing and you remember 10 minutes later, instead of being like, I've ruined everything, just like sit down, close your eyes and meditate. Uh, I do both of those things. I, I do morning pages and, and I meditate almost every morning. Is there the occasional morning? If I will say this. There's the occasional morning that I miss the morning pages and don't do them until later in the day. There's pretty much no day that I miss meditating in the morning. Um, I do think both are important. And I think, I think look, you're a witness, Sam, That because I, I say it, but you've seen it for your whole life, right? The morning, morning pages, pages. And, and meditation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the meditation, I guess, for the last however seven years, but the, the morning pages, you've seen your whole, whole life that I really do it, right? Yeah, every morning. It's coffee, morning pages, meditation. Yep. So that's the truth. And pancakes. Hey, now. Hey. A lot of pancakes. That's, that's, I mean, I admitted that with Wiley, but, um, God, that's sad. Yes. And pancakes. All right, next question. Bradley Rogers asks, what moment are you most looking forward to at the Masters? So here's what I like about this question. I'm looking forward to every single thing about the Masters. Like, I can't believe I get to. I'm covering the Masters for Sports Illustrated. I'll be um, writing about it. I'll write something, I think, every day on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'll come back Saturday night and watch uh, Sunday from home, I think. Unless Tiger's really, really in the hunt, then all bets are off, and I'll probably stay. But I, I will admit I am frightened, creatively scared about doing this. I said yes to it because it's a lifelong dream to go to Augusta. I said yes to it because I am a golf fanatic, but I, I will, I will admit that the idea of going there and walking into the locker room and being a sports journalist for four days is intimidating as hell to me. It is outside of my comfort zone. I, I do a lot of interviews here, obviously, and, um, but that's when people know and they're coming here and um, we're usually talking about something on which I'm fairly expert and I've done my research. I'm a golf fan. I'm a fanatic, but I'm not a good golfer, much as I wish I were. And I'm not a sports writer, much as I am a huge sports fan. I love everything about the game. I've read a ton about the game. And I'll say this, I am preparing. So I'm reading David, the great book by David uh, Owens about the Masters, the, the Cliff Roberts and the making of the Masters. I am reading all the previews put out by all the different magazines, SI, um, there are pages on this and then Golf and Golf Illustrated and every other magazine um, about the Masters. I'll read everything online. 
I'm talking to people. I'm going to call my friend Mike Lupica and ask him how he would think about this. He knows the call's coming. It's already been set up. And, uh, but the thing is, I'm doing it because if I didn't do it, I would regret not doing it. Uh, my stomach's a little naughty about having to go walk into the locker room. Like, how am I going to go up to Bubba Watson after he had a bad round or a good round? And how am I going to ask him something that I'm not going to just feel like an idiot for asking? But like, this is what I would tell all of you. So I have to go do it. I would tell you like, well, jump in. It's an opportunity, but I don't want to play it off. And like when I write the pieces, you won't see the fear in the pieces. I'll write them like a professional, but I, but know that going into it, walking onto those grounds, I will feel like a fraud, an amateur, a fake, and like I don't belong. But then I'm going to do it anyway. And I'm going to prepare enough that I won't, I'm going to prepare enough to defend myself from my own insecurity. I'll never catch up to somebody like Alan Shipnuck or somebody like Michael Bamberger who've been writing about the game for their whole lives. But what I hope I can do is just convince myself that I can find my own way in. And so I'm going to do it. So the answer is I'm looking forward to everything and I'm a little bit nervous about it. All right, two more questions. So this guy sent me this question a few times, Tony Genova, so I'm going to answer it. Uh, he says, uh, Brian, you tweeted that you learned a ton about identity and point of view by watching Tammy Down work. I'm really interested to hear you unpack this story a bit. What did you observe about Tammy? What did you learn from it? Okay, so Tammy Down was the lead singer of a band called Faster Pussycat in the late 80s. And I was responsible for helping them make their album when I was working in the music business. And I wasn't a huge fan of Faster Pussycats. It was kind of a, a kind of a glam rock. But here's the thing about Tamey Down. Tamey Down had created this incredibly specific look, tone, and idea of what his band was about. He knew exactly what it meant to be in Faster Pussycat, and he knew what it meant to be a fan of Faster Pussycats. He ended up co-hosting a lot like this um, Headbangers Ball on, on MTV with, I think, a guy named Ricky Rockman. I could be wrong. I'm sure people can correct me. But um, what I noticed about Tammy was that he, um, and he wrote this, Electra, the label I worked for, wouldn't let him make an album until he had a song that we all thought was like a hit. And the one he finally wrote was called House of Pain, and he played it for me in his apartment on his guitar. And when he played it to me, I knew he'd written a hit song and they could go make the album. But Tammy didn't compromise his vision in order to satisfy the need for a hit. He wrote that song, but it fully fit the mission of who the band was, what they stood for, what they meant. He knew it would cross them over without losing their fans. And watching that was instructive to me and taught me um, taught me something about an artist understanding who they are and understanding how to expand upon that. Hey folks, so if, um, if you enjoyed this or you hated it, feel free to let me know at themobk at gmail.com. One more. Go ahead, Sam. From Robert Freeborn. Can you explain all the moving parts of making a show like Billions? For example, what in the world does a showrunner do? And how is that different from, say, producing the show? Well, there are many producers on the show. There are people who are in charge of producing post-production. There are people who are in charge of making sure that the uh, equipment shows up. 
David and I are responsible for all of it. So showrunning is a term of art. It's actually a word now in the dictionary. And it means the people on the television show who are responsible for every, ultimately responsible for everything from the stories to the scripts, to the casting, to the shooting, to the editing, to the mixing, and all the post-production. And so we are um, either generating or partnering with pe the people who run all those areas. So our casting director is named Allison Estrin. She's incredible, one of the best people in the entire business uh, doing the job. We're talking to Allison every day. Allison is suggesting cast to us. Most of the time we take her suggestions. Often we're discussing those things and we're saying, who are your three favorites? Why are these your three favorites for this particular position? And we're doing that all throughout the entire show, each area of the show. So when you're show running, you're not just writing the show, you're not just producing it on set, you're not just handling post-production, you're handling all the parts of that. You're ultimately responsible for bringing the group of people together who are responsible for making the show. Okay, everybody, this was fun. Um, uh, Sammy, thanks for sitting in. Of course. Thanks and, for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. And um, I will see you next time. Uh, on the moment, it won't just be me. I will have a guest, and it won't just be uh, answering questions. But if you have questions, feel free to send them in, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.